Welcome, Wanderer, to the corner of Story and Game. Here we sit down with storytellers, story crafters, and game designers to discuss what happens at the intersection of fiction and gaming. This week, my humble little establishment is graced by Chris Premus. Chris is a game designer and writer and the founder of Green Ronin Publishing. He was the designer behind the Dragon Age RPG, has worked extensively on the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay RPG, and has contributed to the game Over the Edge. Chris, thank you for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. Before we uh, dive right into talking about craft and everything to do with story and philosophy, uh, let's just quickly touch on your journey into gaming and game design. Can you give me a, a rundown of how you got into it and what your career has been up to this point? So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from Generation X, the forgotten generation. <laughs> yep, that's right. Uh, so when I was 10 years old in uh, 1979, I started to play D&D. And same year, I read Lord of the Rings, and uh, that was it, <laughs> pretty much. I became a Dragon Magazine subscriber, and back in those days, they actually had articles about things that weren't just D&D. Yeah. Uh, reviews and, you know, things like that. And that kind of showed me some of the broader world of tabletop gaming. So I did a lot of explorations, <laughs> and uh, then when I was in college i started thinking about trying to break in as a writer and that didn't really get going till i was in grad school and at a certain point i had a choice of becoming uh, or getting a phd in history uh, or continuing to write game stuff and uh i chose the latter <laughs> <laughs> and uh i broke in uh with uh, just doing freelance work. My first professional work was on a game called Underground by Ray Winninger. It's a RPG that Mayfair Games published in 93, I want to say. Um, and then I built up my resume with freelance work. I started my first company in 1995, which was really way too soon. And so that didn't go, <laughs> but it earned me valuable lessons. And then uh, I went to work for Wizards for four years, and in the middle of that, I started writing. So nice. That's the potted version. So, would you say, looking back, was there a pivotal moment where you could have went to become something else, or everything could have went a different way? Is there that crossing the threshold moment in the story of your life? Well, I mean, two moments that I mentioned were really important. You know, yeah. first, like the D and D Lord of the Rings thing. You know that. I mean, essentially, that changed my life. Right. Those, those two things happening in, in quick succession. And it was, you know, it was like reading Dragon Magazine. I remember thinking when I was like 12 or something, gosh, it'd be great to write an article for Dragon Magazine. And <laughs> hey, I might make $100. Wouldn't that be amazing? So, <laughs> hey, yeah. But I might have just continued to dabble. But, you know, at the point, that I did decide I'm going to start my own company. Yeah. You know, that changed things as well. I, you know, I really embraced the idea of doing this as a full-time thing. Um, right. Okay. So looking back, if you could give a little bit of advice to the younger version of yourself, what would that advice be before he started out? Don't start a company without money. <laughs> Good advice. I mean... My my first company, yeah, we, we literally started it with 
a few thousand dollars. It was me and a childhood friend of mine and my brother. And, uh, you know, we all moved to Somerville, Massachusetts to start that up. I had been in New York City before that. And, you know, we just never had enough money to do the things we needed to do. And it was always a struggle, you know, greener and similar, but better. We had the good fortune of, of being right on the cutting edge of the whole D20 explosion. So our second ever product was called Death in Freeport, which was an adventure for third edition D&D. And, yeah. you know, we sold 10,000 copies of that. So then, you know, we, we had some capital to work with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the uh, the D20 when that first came out, and then Freeport came out. That was that was exciting. Like it was suddenly this major change in the way we were, that we were playing our favorite game. And the mechanics has suddenly made so much more sense. And then you hit the shelf with Freeport, which was wonderfully developed and full of lots of rich world building. Like it was perfectly timed. It was wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean because I was working at Wizards and I had been involved in. The development of the third edition rules, um, you know, as a play tester and designer kibitzing, basically. I didn't write anything for those core books, but I was involved uh, as part of role-playing R&D. You know, I had a, I knew what Wizards was going to do, and they were, you know, they were like, we're going to go back to the dungeon. So, you know, they kicked off with Flemish Citadel, they did Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, and that kind of stuff. So I was like, well, I want to offer something different. How about urban adventures and that is what led to the creation of freeboard okay so looking back one more time we're almost done with the history stuff here <laughs> is there a game that stuck out from your childhood and obviously dungeons and dragons <laughs> obviously but was there any video games board games any other games that in some way impressed upon you or molded you well so at the time that i got into hobby gaming there were kind of fewer boundaries uh than there were as things developed so like these days you have people who are like i play board games that's it you know or even like i play like warhammer 40k that is like the one hobby game that i play yeah but when i was coming up it was like everything and so you know in addition to early things like dnd like i was playing avalon hill squad leader from a very young age and that got me into that whole side of the hobby with hex and shit war games and that led to miniatures games and so on so um all, all that was kind of a, a, a rich steam right on <laughs> yeah. okay so one a tough question i like to ask and i ask it because what we learn from it is often quite valuable for the next generation coming along is what was the biggest failure you've had in your career and what did you learn from it it was one of the main things I did for Wizards, actually. Wizards wanted to launch a miniatures division, and as I love miniatures games, and while I was working on the role-playing side, it was difficult to feel like I was really going to have a chance to make my mark when I was surrounded by people like Skip Williams, <laughs> Tim Mohan, yeah. you know, and uh, some of the other old guard and new people like Bruce Cordell and Monty Cook and stuff like that. But a miniatures game, you know, that was something Wizards hadn't done before. Uh, so I thought that might be a place uh, that I could really do something. But it fell victim to the vicious infighting in Wizards of the Coast. And so um, we made this game called Dungeons and Dragons Chainmail. And like we could do it at like a three hour podcast about that whole 
<laughs> Next that turn. little chapter of my life. But, you know, it just really didn't turn into what I wanted to turn into. And a lot of that had to do with, uh, with brand management, uh, which is one things I really hated about working at Wizards. We had like four different people who were put in charge of the projects. And one of them, as soon as he got the job, was like, by the way, I think Dungeons and Dragons is only the role-playing game. It shouldn't be fiction or miniatures or anything else. And it was like, well, glad to have you on board, boss, for our miniatures game. Jeez. <laughs> So we had had this plan to do a skirmish game to start with that would lead into a mass battle game. Okay. So, you know, when you were playing D&D, if you wanted to have a big battle, like in Dragonlance or something like that, it, you could do it. And after all the wrangling and arguments and uh, all kinds of nonsense, it ended up being only a skirmish game, which was a fun skirmish game. But this was the time when Pokemon was making Watsy like massive amounts of money. So everything was being compared to that. And it was like, hey, could you make $10 million in the first year? And we were like, probably not, honestly. <laughs> so anyway, that came out. It won, it won an Origins Award, but was canceled about two weeks before that. So yeah, it really didn't go. And it made me sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is sad. Uh, I remember being excited about it and thinking we could tie it into our campaign and use it for the big battles that come near the end and then disappeared, faded away. Yeah. What did you learn from that experience? What can we, what can we take away? Well, I mean, for one thing, clarity of vision. <laughs> I mean, there were like the goalposts shifted so many times in that project. And, um, and also, you know, like the ability to control a project like i you know i was basically in charge of the world building and the story stuff although i also worked closely with the rules designers as well but you know i i wasn't allowed to make important decisions and the frustrating part is that these brand manager type people would come into wizards often with no experience in the thing they were supposed to be brand managing um, and then they got to make the important decisions. <laughs> and so, you know, I had to work under a guy whose previous experience was selling medical parts. <laughs> Nothing at all about miniatures games. Um, wow. it, you know, it's just like, wh why? <laughs> why? Why is it designed like this? So, yeah. Um. <laughs> so working as a creative, even just living as a creative, can be very exhausting. You're always mm -hmm. trying to do stuff and you're always pouring yourself into stuff. How do you find balance? Well, you know, I mean, it's hard because even though Reen Reneen has managed to stick around for 23 years and we survived things like the implosion of the D20 thing when lots of companies went out of business um, and other stuff, we still personally don't really make all that much money <laughs> and we don't have healthcare through the company or anything like that. And you know, we work out at home, so it's very difficult to have boundaries mm -hmm. uh, between your workspace and your home space. And for more than a decade, I essentially, you know, I barely had weekends because I would just find myself working like every day. <laughs> and then I, for a year, I had a job in Austin uh, working on a Warhammer 40k MMO that was also a debacle and was never published. But um, then I was trying to 
to do all of that and run the company at the same time. And yeah, it's just, it's just too much. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I had to start being like, take weekends, like actually take weekends off. Right. And after two experiences working at video game companies, I was like, you know what? Just don't do that anymore. <laughs> like, yes, the money and the benefits are great, but it's not like I was going to stop doing green meat. And so uh, I was like, let me concentrate on work that makes me happier than video games. So nice. Yeah. Draw draw some hard lines. I like that. Yeah. When you're running low on creative juices, are there any things you do? Do you have hobbies or things you get out and take in or? Uh, well, so like miniatures games are my major hobby now because it's not work. Um, <laughs> so role-playing games are work and it's hard to get out of the work brain yeah. when you're playing something else, you know, but miniatures games are like after Chainmail essentially have been a, my hobby. And so I and some other industry folks here in Seattle, we started a private game club called Mike and Shots because we're yeah. located near Pike Street. <laughs> and sometimes do shots. Gotcha. So, uh, but that has been such a, a help <laughs> because we've got a lot of super creative people there, play lots of different games. Uh, it's become a social hub. Like, it's really been helpful. And also, like, I love to travel. So, nice. you know, whenever I travel, I have ideas and get inspired. On my, uh, my 50th birthday trip, uh, I went to England and Scotland, and I went up to uh, the the Orkney Islands and to Shetland just by myself. Like so I decided I want to go somewhere remote and be alone. <laughs> and I was able to like climb down into five thousand year old cairns up there, go to stone circles and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's really great for <laughs> you know. Yep, that's getting some perspective and seeing cool shit. Helps. <laughs> That's shit loose your mind. That's a good hobby is go see cool shit. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. While you were working at Wizards of the Coast, I remember <laughs> you put out Dragon Fist, which was a yeah. really cool game that kind of bridged the gap back in 99, just before D20 came out, but it was right on the cusp there. Tell me, what was it like building that game? And how did you bake the essence of Wuxia into it? Uh, so it was an interesting project. You know, it was that there was going to be a period after third edition was announced, but before it actually came out. Right. And so the brief was to do some sort of D&D game that could be kind of an interstitial experience. Like, you know, you could play it over the summertime or something like that in the lead up to third edition. Right. So, uh, as, uh, am, is, am, was, uh, a big fan of, uh, Hong Kong martial arts movies. So I thought, well, hell, why don't I do uh, the Wuxia inspired second edition AD and D variants? And that's, that's how Dragon Fist was born, but it was, um, you know, it lived in a weird space. It wasn't going to be continuing on. Uh, it needed to come out in the appropriate period and all that. And so, you know, I did all the design and play testing and all that stuff and i turned it over and then after i turned it over the brand people there was a theme here <laughs> canceled it <laughs> just put just took it off the schedule so i had to spend a few months lobbying to get it back on the schedule because you know i did a lot of work on it because yeah. i didn't want it to just disappear into the halts so i got back on the schedule for literally two weeks and then it was canceled again so 
<laughs> so then I had to essentially make deals with different groups within Wizards to get it done. And I uh, was Sue Wineland, bless her, who was running the web team at the time. She was like always hungry for content, so she was more than happy to release it as a free PDF. Right. So, uh, part of the website. So that that's all that all that ultimately happened. But it was far it was far from ideal <laughs> circumstances. But when it was released, people really had fun with it, which yeah. was the idea. That was really cool. Yeah. And it was one of the first PDF projects or products out there for role playing wasn't it like it, yeah it was relatively early the um the pioneers on that were hero games they used to sell pdfs on 3.5 discs so if you were at a convention you could buy a disc with a pdf on it interesting but yeah it was it was pretty early in that way so you created your publishing company originally to put out some of your own ttrpg materials but now you're publishing card games, you're publishing fiction, yeah. and you're doing it for some really big IPs, like the expanses in there and some other really mm -hmm. big stuff. What are some specific challenges dealing with those big IPs as opposed to your original stuff like Freeport? Uh, well, there's a whole raft of challenges, starting with even getting the licenses. I, I have negotiated all of our licenses except for one. And, and that alone is, I mean, that's almost a game. <laughs> Sounds like a terrifying uh, game. Because with these bigger companies, they can license almost anything that's going to make them more money than a tabletop role-playing game. And so, you know, one issue that you have is like, you're going to submit, say, a 224-page book to them that they need to read and make sure you're presenting everything in line with their IP and all that stuff. And, you know, it takes a while for someone on staff there to read the whole thing and think about it, comment and blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, they could make, I don't know, a t-shirt or <laughs> yeah, so that's the reality. lunch box or, you know, whatever. <laughs> that's like, they look at it, they say check, and then money comes in. Right. So it's sometimes <laughs> challenging to convince people that this would be good for their brand and IP. Gotcha. And, you know, some companies really get it. You know, Bioware actually came to us um, about Dragon Age. Nice. Because they were, they were fans of our D20 stuff, uh, some of the owners and other people at the company. Yeah. And at that point, Dragon Age hadn't been, I think it was even announced yet. And they were like, we're going to do a spiritual successor of Baldur's Gate. And we thought it'd be really cool to have a tabletop game as well as a nod to the roots. Right. You know, do you want to do it? And I was like, of course we want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's that part. And then, you know, once you have the license, you know, you have to try to maintain the fidelity of the IP and, you know, both rules wise and in the background texts that you're doing. And there's sometimes a tension between our need to make up new things and their need to keep the IP in a box kind of. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes they'll be like, well, we want to develop this area, which you don't, haven't developed at all. So we'd like to make this into an adventuring area. Yeah. And um, some people are like, yeah, cool, go for it. Other people like antsy about it or they just don't want you to do it. And they're like, why don't you use this, this area here that we've done a lot of stuff with already. And there's sometimes not, enough room to move in there as you might like 
Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's a challenge. Oh, yeah. Actually, getting them to, to help you sell it <laughs> when it comes out. Yeah. Some people are great about it. Some people, you have to remind their marketing people, hey, by the way, we exist with this game licensed for you, so maybe yeah, <laughs> you could send out some tweets or something. <laughs> Give us a shout out. And sometimes we've dealt with just individual authors. So, you know, we had a license for Game of Thrones series. And I negotiated directly with George R. R. Martin. Oh, that's cool. Which was cool to just get to call George on the phone and ask him questions and things. Yeah. But the downside of that was shortly after we had the license, they started to develop a TV show. And so his to-do list was a mile long. Yeah. And approving role-playing game books was like not towards the top. So that was also a challenge. But it's it's nice to be able to deal directly with the creators because it's just easier that way than than having layers of people between you and the creative team. Gotcha. How was um, Mr. Martin for allowing you to play in a sandbox and, and build and create new things? Or was he pretty much, this is how everything is and stick to it? Or No, he let us do stuff. We did a book for that game of the Chronicle Starter and... One of the conceits of the game was that you would build your own noble house, like a minor noble house. Cool. And there was a whole system for creating the house. And that's something that you as a group would do together. And then your characters all had different roles within the house. Oh, neat. So, but, you know, that required some work. And also for the GM, they want to have other nearby houses for you to interact with, allies, enemies, whatever. Yeah. And so essentially what... The Chronicle Starter did was just give you a pre-made house and then like five or six other minor houses and, you know, build it all out for you, give you NPCs, adventure ideas, you know, all that stuff. And George just let us go to town on that. Nice. So that's cool. Very cool. Okay. So as a publisher, I am sure you have sifted through more than your share of submissions and people trying to pitch ideas to you. So in all your years, mm-hmm. do you, have you built up a list of red flags of things that are like, do not do this when submitting to a publishing company or looking for work or pitching a project? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is going to sound stupid, but for real, <laughs> put your name and email on it because <laughs> you'd be surprised how many people don't. And then you're like, you're looking at something like, wait, who, who is this even from? <laughs> but also, um, some people want to like prove to you that they really know what they're doing by trashing your stuff and being like, let me show you all the ways that this product was bad. Wow. And that's not a great foot to start off on. Uh, no. So, <laughs> you know, just give your good ideas and, and maybe don't insult the people that you're trying to get work from. That's good advice right there. (laughs) Okay. As a publisher, in your opinion, what are some of the essential ingredients to a good module or great module? Well, first and foremost, it has to have an engaging story. And it's very easy. I mean, particularly with like dungeon crawl type things to just sort of design things room to room and not really think too much about an overarching story. Right. But that is always a big help. Memorable villains. Also very helpful. Yeah. Villains who might stick around for a while, come back to 
haunts the players and mm-hmm. things like that. And uh, you also want to have enough room in there for the GM to breathe and kind of customize it in some ways nice. for, for their group uh, or campaign. So the big things, I would say. So you mentioned story and making sure that there's a good story. How do you, in the world of tabletop role-playing, how do you bake that into a module? How do you, how do you make sure that the story is strong inside of something that's going to be so flexible and fluid? Well, you need to work in ways that, that the players are learn about what's happening in the backgrounds. One of the early adventures that I did was a, a Warhammer a fantasy role-play adventure called The Place of Testing. It was about Shamir, who were kind of monster there. And uh, this was for Hogshead Publishing when they had the license, and it was one chapter of a larger book. And I had this very elaborate backstory about what was happening with the Shamir when the players encountered them, but I didn't put in enough ways for the players to actually learn <laughs> what was happening. And so, you know, the GMs uh, had to roll with it. And, you know, in retrospect, like that wasn't a good design. That's where you see a lot of stuff with handouts or maybe, you know, witnesses or other NPCs or, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's cool to have mysteries, but if you want them to grasp Mm -hmm. like fully what's going on, like you need to reveal that over time. Yeah. So I would say ensure... (laughs) <laughs> but you can do that because you're not going to engage anybody if they don't understand what the story is. Nice. On the other side of that, on the flexibility side of that, how do you ensure there's enough space, enough, as you say, breathing room for game masters, DMs, to build their own stories inside of a structured product? Mm. It always helps to put some things in like, here's how you might continue this adventure, or you might fork off at this point add something of your own or here's three different ways you can start the adventure or you know just basically giving them options right places like in death and freeport there's a part of the map that just goes off into the serpent men tunnels and it's like if you want to develop some dungeon stuff down here like go to town <laughs> so that kind of thing nice when i was young i often would run the modules really as written in overtime because I often pick disparate things and work them into what I'm trying to do. I just can't do that. I have to <laughs> have to change things so it makes sense in the context of what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. I was when I was young, like a teenager, it was very much like, well, this is, you know, Gary Gygax is in this module and I have to Right. <laughs> it's a run it this way. And that that's not the not the case. <laughs> so when you're looking at a module that you're gonna publish or perhaps something that you're building or a product that you're building yourself, how do you ensure you're offering something new that's going to engage your audience? Well, <laughs> it's, it's hard to just say be creative. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. You have to Riff off things that you like, essentially, and try to find some things that you haven't seen a lot before or ever. I've had a couple of occasions where people have wanted to play D&D 5th edition and I've run it for them. And I'm like, yeah, let me just find a decent low-level adventure to run to save me time. And I'm trying to find a low-level D&D adventure that is not 
fighting kobolds, goblins, and orcs, <laughs> skeletons, is very difficult. Yeah. And it's just, when you game for a long time, it's like, you just can't make kobolds exciting to me, sorry. <laughs> Things like that, where it's like, yeah, you could come up with something completely different that people haven't experienced before and low-level adventures, and you know, that's a that's a good way in, or something along those lines, something unique, like a puzzle, or there could be a mini game inside of it. Uh, you're being chased by bandits, you know, here's how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. Cool. When it comes to world building, I find that there's people who like to start macro, big view, mm -hmm. and then there's people who like to start micro, where they start with a small region and they build out from there. Which one are you? Uh, you know, I am both. <laughs> um, actually wrote an essay about this for the Kobold Guide to World Building. And essentially I've done it both ways. Like, because I love big fantasy cosmology stuff, you know, like I love the Eternal Champion books from Michael Warcock because they really had this big cosmology they were hung off of. It's fun to come up with creation stories and yeah, you know, how does this world really function? Deep backstory and all that stuff. Yeah. But A, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and B, a lot of that stuff isn't really going to come out in play at first. Right. So it is sometimes preferable to just pick a discrete area and, you know, create that as an adventuring environment. So like when I was at Wizards, I was on the Greyhawk team for a little while. And they were trying to relaunch Greyhawk. It wasn't really going that well. So we had a, a meeting where we tried to think of an alternate way to get people into Greyhawk because it was an older setting. Yeah. We came up with what I thought was a cool idea, which is essentially to create a small region in uh, like the Great Kingdom where you can start having low-level adventures and the amount of stuff you needed to know about the setting was pretty contained. Right. And then just keep going out going from village to town, town to city, city to province, and then introduce them to the wider world step by step. Nice. That is a good way to do it, but I do enjoy creating cosmologies too. So. Darn right. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. As a publisher, what kind of stuff are you what kind of stuff do you like to publish? Like what gets you fired up? What gets you Jumping out of bed in the morning, excited to go and read and look at. Yeah. Well, I'm 53, so I don't really jump out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always liked a lot of different things, right? Going back to my early days when I was playing role-playing games and, and you know, war games and board games and whatever. And that's how Green Ronin has been for RPGs, too. Like, we're always coming up with new ideas for games and things like that. Yeah. And we we didn't do something like what Paizo did, which is like, we have a world called Delarian, and everything we publish for this game right. takes place there. And that's it. <laughs> We're going to do one game, you know, which they did for more than a decade before they did uh, Starfinder, you know, and everything works with that. And it's all part of the same thing. And that might have been a smarter... <laughs> <laughs> thing to do uh, because, you know, we do have fans of our many different games. There's some crossover between them, but not, you know, 
people who play the expanse aren't necessarily going to pick up fantasy age right something like that but on the other hand it's more fun to have variety it's developing new stuff i mean that's that's the most exciting thing nice that that raises an interesting question for me is how paizo has done galarian and versus how you are all over the place and then cobalt press is kind of somewhere in the middle there yeah. Is that something you would ever consider doing is creating a core core world, a core set of rules that revolve around a core set of like a world that's been built for you? Is that something like, have you ever given that serious thought? I'm just curious. So basically the fantasy age core rule book, it introduces kind of a meta setting called stranger shores. It's definitely influenced from um, Sailor on the Seas of Fate, the old Elric novel, mm-hmm. where, you know, he and other people are sailing through these mists and ending up in different worlds. And that was something that I had put into Freeport with the idea of the mystic navigators. Yeah. <laughs> and they were, uh, you know, sort of arcane navigators who could get you through the this these sort of mists to other places without you being lost forever. <laughs> so I recently taken that concept and and broadening it out in Fantasy Age. There's a new adventure area in there called Breakwater Bay, and then we're going to be developing a, a, a Stranger Shores campaign setting. That's going to be a bunch of areas that you can go to and adventure at. And, of course, part of that network is going to be Fruitport. Nice. And then Fruitport will get its own Fantasy Age setting book. That was, that was what I was digging for right there. That was it. That was my, got a spot on the shelf over there. Yeah. So we're now at the part of the interview that kind of is the core, the kernel, the whole reason behind my podcast. And that is, in my opinion, there exists a magical space between where game and performance and acting and voiceover and video games and writing and fiction and novels and comic books, all these things meet And in the middle of there, everybody can just hang out. They instantly get along. We all have a shared common something. In your opinion, what is the common thing inside of that center space? I mean, I think it has to be story, right? I mean, all those things are are either giving you a story or letting you interact with a story or encouraging you to add to stories, be it through fanfic or, you know, uh, RPG campaigns or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of, I think that's the meeting points of, of all those different things. I totally agree. So the follow-up to that is then why is story important and, and why is story important to you? It's important to me because yeah, it's through stories that I ended up doing what I do. I mean, it literally created a structure for my entire life. So <laughs> That's a good reason. I was never going to be the sort of person who is going to punch the clock somewhere. Just do the same thing over and over again all the time. Like that's, <laughs> I, I that, hear you. that never appealed to me. You know, even though we do make role-playing games every day, all the time, there's new stuff to right. do uh, all the time. So <laughs> that's, I think, uh, I think that's it. But you know, the story stuff, I mean, that just, that's just goes to the, uh, the earliest years of humanity, right? From cave paintings, people have been yep. engaged with stories. So let's just think it's part of our, our cultural DNA, I guess. Agreed. Okay, so before we get wrapping up here, I have what I like to call the quick fire questions. 
Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have to think too hard. I'm just looking for quick answers. Unless you want to wander down a trail, then feel free. I mean, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> so, first one. What is your favorite game world? My nostalgic favorite is the old world from Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which Games Workshop blew up <laughs> to, to create Age of Sigmar, which is their current fantasy game. But now, like a year ago, they announced that they're bringing it back. So there's now going to be a new game called The Old World. So I don't know what they're doing with it. But anyway, when I was in college, we played through the whole Enemy Within campaign. It was really like a formative game experience. And I also played the miniatures game as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of love for that setting. Right on. So what are you playing these days? Video game, tabletop, or board games? So that's Fantasy Age, second edition, of course. <laughs> of course. Playing some D&D, actually prepping a campaign now because my sister-in-law expressed a desire after listening to D&D podcasts to try D&D. Nice. So I'm uh, putting together a campaign for that. Board games occasionally, a lot of miniatures games, which probably is a surprise at this point. Nope. If you interview. I'd have called that one. But um uh, I've been doing a series of uh, kind of one month mini campaigns with my my longtime gaming buddy Rick. Uh, we met at Wizard of the Coast. I've been playing miniatures games together since like 2001 or something like that. Nice. So we just wrapped up like a Stargrave mini campaign. We that's an Osprey game uh, when you know, you're captain and crew of a spaceship <laughs> having adventures. Uh, we did a Lion Rampants. Uh, campaign that's a historical game it's also from Osprey and then in our club the big thing has been the Horus Heresy game which is a separate game from Warhammer 40k it's like a prequel game right but a really fun era and so we're doing a whole story campaign thing based around that which is a bunch of cool we'll have to get you to come back sometime we'll do a podcast on just Warhammer mythology <laughs> and lore and the story behind that because it's, it's yeah. so interesting yeah oh and saga saga is one of my favorite minis games of the last decade um yeah. it's it's got a really uh neat system that kind of combines some card game and dice elements into it um like the core rules are really simple but then depending on what army you're playing you have a battle board special dice that have common uncommon rare symbols on them huh. so each turn you roll the dice and you have to allocate them to the abilities that you want to activate and basically it's like a resource management part right when deciding like which abilities are going to give you the best results that turn and that and so it started as a, like a dark ages game but now they they have what they call universes they get a fantasy version, but also like Alexandrian Greek, uh, Republican Roman, Crusades, all kinds of stuff. Very cool. Love that game. In your opinion, what three films should every game designer watch? The, the generations are different. <laughs> like for me, Excalibur was, you know, like a formative film. Yeah. Both because like I love the Arthurian mythos, but also one of the things that makes the Arthurian mythos engaging generation after generation is that everybody does their own spin on it and right. so this was a film that was like this is john borman's version of the arthurian mythos and uh thought it was great taught me things about story and and uh, other stuff mm-hmm. so i i don't know if a current 
day designer would be like, oh yeah, this is great. Right. <laughs> but the Lord of the Rings trilogy of movies, like that's a good example. If you're gonna do a fantasy game, it's a good thing to watch. But you know, as a Hong Kong movie fan, also like you know, there's a tons of, of Hong Kong movies you could go to. Like Bride with White Hair is a fun one to start with, or oh. Chinese Ghost Story, and some of the, the classics back in the day. If you could sit down at a gaming table with four people from any time in history, living or dead, who would they be and what would you play? I could probably answer this question differently, like, every day. Um, <laughs> Today, <laughs> For a mix of the new and old, I would say Michael Moorcock, because massive output, influential on me and my world designs and things like that. Right. Emma Goldman, famed anarchist, because uh, I read her uh, autobiography when I was a teenager. That also was a big influence on me. And then I think I got to give props to my, my Greek brother, Homer. Because <laughs> okay. come on, man. Iliad and the Odyssey. It would be awesome to explain role-playing games to Homer. Could you imagine? <laughs> uh, and then, uh, modernly speaking, uh, N.K. Jemison behind the Broken Earth trilogy that we're turning to a game. She's just such a brilliant creator. You know, I just really admire her and yeah. her work. So be great to have her at a table too. All right. Well, it is time to start packing it in. But before we go, do you have any current news, projects, products, releases, launches, anything you want to boost? Basically like COVID, which is really... Uh, was bad for us in a lot of ways and all the knock-on effects from that. And so we've got a lot of projects that we've been working on for years and years that are finally going to be released. So we we haven't had like a new full RPG since The Expanse, which was 2018. And then this year, somehow we're going to do three. <laughs> so Fantasy Age is coming first, uh, hopefully in June. And then Cthulhu Awakens, which is our spin on the mythos after that. And then the fifth season game based on N.K. Jemison's stuff. And then, you know, meanwhile, we've been working on a bunch of supplements. You know, the next book for The Expanse is called The Soul System. Uh, it's basically like a deeper look at the you know, Earth's home system. Because the previous book was called Beyond the Ring, which lets you go through these these alien rings to different galaxies and things like that. So this is like kind of pull it at home. And we're kind of a big Blue Rose mega campaign. We released something called Envoys to the Mount last year, which was the first one of these. Essentially, it's a Blue Rose adventure path. Yeah, they that. And there was a tie-in fiction anthology to that uh, called Tales from the Mounts. Anyway, so we're working on another one of those, which takes place in a different part of Amaldia, which is the, the Blue Rose world. Gotcha. Uh, we're taking the system from the orc role-playing game and we're making a more serious game like that. All right. Um, well, if uh, people want to find you online or if you want people to find you online, where can they find you? <laughs> well, for at least the time being, I'm still on Twitter, although that becomes dodgier every day, but I'm at Premis over there. The company is at Green Runeen Pub. Uh, we also have a company Facebook page. I'm also on Facebook. It's not hard to find. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, that that is uh, that is it. So again, I want to thank you for your time. This has been a lot of fun. 
It's running me on. I'm thinking that's the last of the ale, and we ran out of coffee long ago, so it's time to shut things down. Thank you for stopping by and joining us while Chris shared his wisdom and stories. If you liked this week's conversation, be sure to tell your friends. And in the meantime, your table will be waiting when you next stop in at the corner of Story and Game. <laughs>